0: Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Nate Brill with Realty One Group in Surprise, Arizona. Last year he closed 80 transactions with a total sales volume of 22 million his average sales price was 272,000 of which 50% were buyers and 50% were sellers Nate has a six member team one buyer specialist one team agent one listing coordinator one transaction manager one marketing manager and one team leader Nate is the team leader of the Brill team he's been an agent for 4 years he works the Metro Phoenix market in this call Nate talks about having a fast start and selling 27 homes his first year, ramping up to 73 homes his second year and 80 homes his third year when he closed 66 transactions personally. Why his production fell in half to 39 homes his fourth year. Why we learn more from our failures than our successes. Lessons learned in the down year and how you can avoid it. The benefits of a lead generation schedule. How he closed two homes per month, 24 per year, by hosting open houses. Detailed open house statistics, such as best day to hold an open, average leads per open on different days of the week, number of leads needed to get to a closing, and days in market from first introduction to close. Description of his open house system. Why he does not add every visitor to his registration book and why relationship building is the key to open house success. How 35% of his business is from repeated referrals from past clients and Sphere of Influence and why he never asked for a referral. Team Dynamics, Compensation, Profit Margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Nate. Hey, Mike. Hey, Nate. Great to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Nate, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate.
1: I um, I was in, I guess you could call it sales. I was actually an account manager for a company that was an automotive parts manufacturer. So we were we were actually contracted through General Motors, and I worked there from the time that I was 18, really my first real job, and uh, started out answering phones, customer service stuff, and then worked my way up into an account manager role. And I was their youngest one that they had ever had in that role. And it was actually the owner of the company who took a, a big leap of faith and gave me quite the responsibility because you're traveling all over the country on the company's dime you are driving rental cars for sometimes weeks on end and representing the company so at the uh ripe age of i think i was 21 or 22 when i took that position i was able to start doing that which while doing that i was actually building a business with my brother um which was a uh, a water feature company where we actually built water features for um residential and very nice homes and restaurants and those types of things. So I kind of had those two going on simultaneously, which one fed the other in terms of a knowledge base. Everything I was learning at the company I was working for was really instructing me on what it meant to actually run a business. And then the water feature business was teaching me actually how to be an entrepreneur, which allowed me to apply those same kind of skills to running my my actual territory. And all of that between the two of them is really what gave me the, I would say, the all-around skill set to do what I do now. And I actually have carryover from both of those that I actually think about regularly as coming from one or the other. And it's kind of weird sometimes when I'm when I'm thinking about what I do every day because the parallels are so direct. You know, you're talking about very different industries. You know, you're talking automotive as my main vocation at the time, um, and you're talking about real estate. And while they Seem very different from one another. They're actually, at the end of the day, the job that I do feels to be about the same because it's all people.
0: How long were you doing this automobile remanufacturing parts business and the business you had there with your brother, the water feature business? How long were you doing that before you went into real estate?
1: The company that I started with, I worked there for 12 years and about nine of those 12 years was as an account manager. The other three was in customer service. And then the water feature business we had from 07 to the end of 09, so not too terribly long. It was definitely, if those years ring a bell for you, um, it wasn't just bad for real estate. Uh, It was also not the greatest time to be building a complete and total uh, luxury product that only a few people have enough money for, especially in the height of the recession. So that one didn't last too terribly long, but I, I learned a heck of a lot.
0: Now, why did you decide to switch over and get into real estate?
1: I wish I had like a real story as to why real estate, but I really don't. What it really comes down to is that at the company that I was at for all those years, it had been changing slowly. It had been purchased and I was sort of call it falling out of love with the company itself because I was, anytime that I am working for a company or working for myself whatever my heart's all into what I'm doing and so um, when that started to slide with the company itself it just felt like they really didn't care much anymore I was starting to feel not like I was floundering but like I just couldn't find my place and what I really wanted to do and I had been asking and asking and asking literally for years for more of a leadership role I was leader by by my actions but not by position and that was for a while, but I really felt like I was capable of more. So I was in this kind of like soul-searching place for probably the last two years trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I knew that the business with my brother hadn't gone well, so I really didn't want to start a business, not one that I had to go and like build or buy product. And then I was out on the road in Minnesota and I was listening to Dave Ramsey. And Dave Ramsey is, I'm sure a lot of people know who he is, but he's all about getting out of debt and all that stuff. But the primary reason why I listened to him was that it was a constant driver of being better, working harder, earning your keep. And I had listened to all of these calls with people who were doing really, really well. And a lot of times they were in sales. And there were a few key ones that I remembered where it was actually real estate. And I remember that Dave Ramsey himself had gotten his start selling real estate. And I don't know what it was in that moment, but it was, literally like a, an immediate, it clicked. I pulled my car over on the side of some rural road in the middle of Minnesota, called my wife and told her, this is it. This is the thing that I had been looking for. I just wasn't really aware of what it was. And then by that evening, I was signed up for class and I still had to work my day job. So I didn't get to actually get started in real estate for a few more months, but I knew as soon as the idea hit me, I knew absolutely that that was it. I mean, without a second guess, I knew for sure that this was the right the right avenue for me.
0: You said you signed up for that class right away. Did you quit your job right away, or did you try to do both at the same time?
1: I started class very quickly after, and of course, it was, it was December, and so they had like a three-week period where I couldn't go to class. I went to one class, and then had to wait three weeks to go to the next one. So I still had my day job, and my day job was very flexible because, I will say, very flexible except for the travel part, which was very inflexible. But when I was working out of the office, which was my home office, it allowed me the ability to kind of get my work done so that when I went to real estate school, I could go and kind of, I mean, I felt guilty about it the entire time I did it, but I kind of had to. Um, I couldn't make the leap because I didn't even have the ability to make income, so I kept the job, I was working the job, and then I was getting licensed at the same time. got licensed in March of 2014, and then quit and went full-time into real estate at the, I think it was May like 15-ish. But what's really funny is that I remember when I told my wife, you know, that I was getting a and I said, my goal is to be able to quit by the end of 2014. And then that turned into, I really want to quit by like September of 2014. And then I was like, well, let's push it to June. And then I was very quickly realizing there was going to be no keeping up and had to just decide that I was going to quit and take that leap of faith. Not having any closings at that point, but I had, fortunately, like I said, with the Dave Ramsey program, we had a lot of money in the bank But we also, we were making an educated jump because I had stuff in the pipeline, people that I was very, very confident were going to do something. And if they didn't, I had several months in the bank where I could kind of float myself until I got there. But I knew I was going to hinder my ability to actually be successful if I kept the day job. And I knew one or the other was going to fail, if not both, if I tried to keep them, them both going.
0: Sounds like you got in a little before the middle of the year. How did that first six months go?
1: If you were to break the first six months in two, the first three of those six months was a lot of really, really, really hard work with no return of any sort, other than just feel good if I was adding leads to the pipeline. But I didn't have a single closing for three months, almost exactly the day. So I got my license March 14th. I had my first closing on June 11th. But then the following three months after that, uh, it depends on how you define a quick start. I think by any real measure, it was a quick start. But the second three months of that six month portion were busy. And in August, I had eight closings. But to me, being wired the way I am, I still felt unsuccessful, which is sort of stupid and it sounds silly in retrospect. But I had expected a much stronger start than than what I actually got or in my mind what I got because of how much work I was doing. I mean, I was working 70, 80 hours a week just grinding, grinding, grinding. And so I just would have thought that it would have happened faster. But it was a good six months. No question about it.
0: Do you remember your production numbers from that first year? You know, you start to get into uh, mode there and you start to plug in. Do you recall what the results were that first year?
1: Yeah. So the first year, we had 27 closings. And that was really the first six months from when I went full-time. So I count when I really started, basically call it like June 1st. So June through the end of the year, we had 27 closings. I take credit for the 27 closings because I earned those 27 closings. I'm the one who originated them and basically worked to convert them. But I was on a team at the time and it was kind of a different sort of setup where it was kind of like a team within a team. And so I was generating them, and then it would get handed off for somebody else to close. And I will kind of keep my opinion to myself about the way that was set up. But I will say that it was very defeating to know that those closings were mine, that I earned them, that I worked really hard to get them, and didn't get really any credit for them. I mean, I got paid for them, but our MLS didn't give me any credit for them. And a lot of the agents, you know, took the credit for them on Zillow. And those, you know, especially when you're first getting started, you're trying to wrap up and hold as many of those closings as you can to your name so that you can start to build some credibility. And so I was limited in what I could really claim, even though the truth of it is that they were mine. So for the sake of me tracking my numbers, I know they're mine. My spreadsheet that I keep has them identified as mine because I generated them.
0: That's really interesting. So you started on a team. And I'm trying to get a handle on what your position was on the team. Were you an ISA, an inside sales agent? Were you a buyer agent? What was the role of the team? And we're going into why you, you felt dissatisfied with that role as well. What was the role?
1: Yeah, so it was a different role than you're going to find on just about any team across the country because it really didn't exist. And I think the idea of it was a good one. I just don't think it worked out. So the idea was that you would have an identified team leader. I mean, this was a big team that I was on. And so I think we had like 30 or 50 agents or I can't remember. We had a lot of agents. And so the team leader basically identified several different people within the team that I think these will make really good team leaders, which a lot of people were pissed that I had become one because I hadn't had any sales to my name yet. But the team leader knew my history in terms of my sales history, my ability to sell. And just, I guess, I don't know, the way I interacted with him, he had the confidence in me to become a team leader. And so I think he had like six or seven different team leaders, and then he had several different members underneath them. So what my job was, was to, um, he had gone and spent um, an astronomical amount of money on like Trulia Zillow, and Zillow. I think it was just Truly actually, and funneled all of the leads that would come into the specific team leaders and then all of the ancillary work they'd be doing, like open houses and other different things, again, the same thing would happen. A lead would come in, and it wasn't like the typical model where you have somebody who's like a lead manager. It was really that person was the cultivator, the generator, and they would do all the work and then hand it down the line to somebody to actually do the the production work, the actual transaction of it. And so that's what I was doing. I I was that guy on my particular... Call it, quote, team. And that didn't last long. So, the last probably, I think I went onto my own team, started my own team in October. So, it was about six months that I was on that other team doing that.
0: Interesting. They were experimenting with a a model. You gave us your view of the model from being inside the machine and appreciate that and uh, what your thoughts were on that. And I'm sure that will affect how you build your team in the future. You said you branched out on your own team in October of that year. So very quickly, just six months in or so of your career. And how did that following year go?
1: The following year was excellent. 2015, we did 73 transactions. So that was really good. Um, it was basically a culmination of all that work I had been putting in at the beginning of the year when I was getting licensed was the stuff that came to fruition in 2015. So a lot of the open house closings that I had came from my work in 2014. I was already getting past clients. It was amazing. I didn't think it would happen that quick, but I had a couple that were, you know, had purchased a home and then got themselves established and said, okay, well, now we want to go buy an investment property. So they called me. Some people moved super quick. I couldn't believe they had just bought and were already selling. So I would come from that. So it was like I, a lot of the work I had been doing in 2014 really just kind of like came together in beginning mid part of 2015 and I was really aggressive in all of the marketing that I was doing or all of the prospecting I was doing and I was calling expireds and Fisbos, and doing lots of different things kind of experimenting with what was working and what wasn't and it was all working I mean some of it was working really really well other stuff I was having to work really hard to get but it was still it was yielding fruit so I kept doing it so yeah it was a really good year it was Definitely a good, call it full first year, and it got me a lot of attention, which is both good and bad. The good is that obviously it feels nice to be recognized, but the bad is that you get really in your head. And I'm sure we'll get into this later in into the, into the conversation here, but you really get into your head because suddenly other people are looking to you. And if you falter, you really take that a lot harder than if nobody knew that you faltered. 2016 was an excellent year, and I know we'll talk those numbers too, but I think that carried over into 2016. I mean, I got awards, and I got things that were really cool, and I've you know, got them hanging up on my wall, and I feel really good about them, but I think it's a double-edged sword. I really do.
0: Let's give people some of the information. This is nice. It's a nice, quick career, so we can talk about most of your career right sure, here, so yeah. let's do it. So 2016, that's basically your second full year in the business. It's last year, so it's very, very recent. What was your production in twenty sixteen?
1: Twenty sixteen was eighty units for just under twenty two million. I think it's twenty one point eight, if I have that number right. Let me just double check it. Uh twenty one point eight, yeah, was our total production for the year. Which is good. Uh, I definitely that was that was no black year. It's the only reason why I hesitate to give it as much credit as I would like to is that I went from twenty seven to seventy three and from 73 to 80, so it wasn't near the jump that I had from, you know, the, the first year, to the second year. But still, I mean, it was a, a really, really good year. No question about it.
0: I call those plateau years and reinforcement years. You're reinforcing that you can sustain that level. And uh, so I don't see that as a setback at all. You're producing at a high level. You're producing at what you did the year before. Uh, if anybody else is experiencing that, I think that's pretty good. You're reinforcing in your mind, in your psychology, that you're able to do that. So I think that's pretty good. Let's break down that 2016 again. You had 80 units, 22 million, and how many people were on the team at that 2016 sounds like, if I understand before what, three.
1: Yeah. So I had. Uh, so I was the team leader. We had my brother, who was he had just gotten licensed, and he had come on officially full-time, just basically the very tail end of 2015. So 2016 was really his first year there. And he came on the team mainly as a buyer's agent, but not buyer exclusive. Um, I've never liked the model where an agent can only work buyers. I just don't think it makes them a well-rounded agent. And I feel like if somebody goes and produces a seller, they should be able to work that seller. But my brother was there primarily working the buyers, buyers that I was acquiring, and he would work them. And then he actually produced, so I did 66 of those, 80 myself. My brother did the remaining portion, and so he produced those on his own. And then we had a transaction manager, and then my wife is our listing coordinator, and she really started taking that position on kind of like full-time, really. like We officially labeled her as the listing coordinator probably about, I don't know, a third to a halfway through the year. So it was, call it
0: a team. So you're starting to build some mass. You're having some success in the production. I had 66 personal units. That's pretty cool, pretty exciting. And, and in a minute, we're going to talk about how you were generating those leads. But I want to follow the rest of this timeline. So we're almost to the end of 2017. How's it gone this year?
1: This is not so exciting, but uh, very humbling. Uh, Year that I have had here. So I have had literally half the transactions this year that I had last year. And I have been beating myself up and trying to figure out what the hell happened all year. And, you know, now that I'm through the end of the year, I definitely have some takeaways. And again, I know we'll get into this, but we'll end the year at 39 transactions. Just a little over 11 million in sales. So, all 39 of those are generated by me. So, it's not as bad, I guess, in my mind, if I'm making it simpler on myself or easier on myself, it's not as bad as 50%, but still a 40% drop in business is not great. You know, 66 down to 39. But there are a lot of different reasons. And I have, I'll say that I'm very glad, as crazy as this sounds, to have gone through this. I think I have some lessons. I guess I should say I know I have some lessons both from the from the business side and kind of a um, call it a philosophical side and what it means to me personally. Because when you have that kind of a drop, especially on the heels of having such huge success to start, it really, really puts things into perspective for you. And you have to kind of stop and go, what what is going on and what happened? So... Again, I definitely don't, as much as I have beat myself up over it, I've let that part go, and now I'm kind of in the, Jim Collins in Good to Great talks about facing the brutal facts, and if you want to wallow in your sorrow and, you know, woe is me about it, you're never going to get ahead, but if you just look at the situation and go, okay, well, here we are. I don't like those numbers. I don't like where I'm at, but this is where we are. That allows you to just look at it objectively and go, okay, well, what? What happened? What did we learn? And what are we going to do different? And that's where I'm at now. And I'm actually excited to talk about that portion because I think there's a lot of listeners to the show that could really benefit from hearing that it isn't always good. It isn't always up. There's a fantastic book out there called Shift by Gary Keller. And that's about a shifting market. And I think the important distinction here is that our market's actually doing really well. Our Phoenix market is one of the best markets in the whole country. But there are other factors that contribute to a market shift. It could be your own personal market shift, which is what happened with me. But you have to identify that you're in that shift. You have to identify and again, get objective about it and go, "Okay, what happened? What do I want to have different next year?" And that's kind of that, that's the place that you find me right now during this interview. There's a whole lot that I delved into with my numbers and figured out lots of different things. And hopefully I can make some sense of it, not only for myself, but for anybody who's curious about what the hell happened to me.
0: (laughs) Nate, very good. Well, Nate, I want to give everybody a true, clear picture of what happened here in 2016. For instance, one of the other pieces of the puzzle here is that you added people to your team. You had the core four from the prior year. How many people did you add and who did you add in 2016?
1: So in 2016, we had the four that I named there. In 2017, my brother left. My brother left January 1st and went and started his own team. So good for him. And so at that time, I brought on a new agent, a new buyer's agent. And this one, the role was going to be different because I needed a little bit more control over it. I love my brother to death. I will never tell my brother what to do because he's my brother, not because I can't tell an agent what to do, brother or otherwise, but because I because I just felt like that was, I don't know, a little more complicated because of the fact that he was my brother. So anyway, I had a new agent come on as my buyer's agent and she does really primarily work buyers. I told her that if she gets a seller, she can certainly work that and I'm not going to keep her from doing that. but. All year, the only thing she's worked is buyers. And really, the only buyers that she is working are the buyers that I'm bringing in. So she's there as the buyer's agent. We also added another agent at the very end of this year. I mean, he literally got started on our team about a month ago. And again, I know we'll get into this stuff later, but he's got a kind of a different place on the team in that I'm giving him a safe place to land, but I'm not necessarily setting goals for his production as I would for an agent that I was trying to bring on the team. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy, and he's got a lot to add and a lot to bring. But maybe this isn't the right way to look at it, certainly not the orthodox way for a team leader to look at it, but the goals that I set are the goals that I know that I can attain because I'm producing them. I don't like to set goals, team goals, that rely on other agents' being motivated enough to bring in their own business. I hope that they do, and I'm going to do everything I can to goal set with them, to give them the methods that they need to use, the tactics, teach them all the way through just like a really good team leader should. But ultimately, if they're not making the money that they want to make, that's holding them accountable to their goals. Me sitting down with them and telling them that they've got to make X number of calls a day or do X number of open houses, and if they're not, they're off the team, That just doesn't work for me. Because there's that distracts me from the work that I need to do to continue to produce for myself. So, anyway, this is a really long way of going about it to say that he's I mean, he's on the team, but his production is his production, and we'll count it towards the team. He hasn't produced anything yet for this year because he's just getting rolling. But for 2018, his goals are going to be his goals, and I hope that they add on top of what I'm producing. But His role is different than Denise's in that Denise's job is to basically facilitate the work that I bring in. If I bring in a buyer, it goes to Denise to work because she's going to be the one who's going to take them basically from the time that they become a client to when they actually close on the deal. And where my other agent that came on, everything that he's bringing in is his own. So, and then we added, we've got my, don't think I could call her my right-hand man because, well, it's not a man. But she is truly my everything in terms of if there's something that I need done, she does it for me. It doesn't matter whether it's marketing, if it's following up with showings, if it's setting up you know, work to be done on one of our listings. I mean, it's everything. I actually brought her on originally thinking she would become my transaction manager for this year because we've changed companies. And so I lost my transaction manager that I had before. But the more we got into it, I realized not only is her personality not suited to sitting down doing paperwork all day, she's also so much more capable than just that. She's not one-dimensional. She's, in a lot of ways, very similar to me in a lot of ways, very different from me. She's much more extroverted than I am, so she's pushing me to do things that I wouldn't otherwise do. And even though I've had a year that was less than a banner year, and her expense has been a big expense to me this year, especially because my income obviously went down, it is definitely the single best and most valuable expense that I had all year and I wouldn't change it for anything because even though I did less production this year if I had been doing everything that I was doing the previous years I still would not have had much of a life or certainly not near as much of a life as I've had this year because he's he's given me the the leverage to to do other things
0: so Nate if I understand correctly your team this year has basically gone up to six. That includes you. You now have six on the team. That's correct. Okay, great. And they, what I'd like to do, and by the way, thank you for being so forthright and sharing your experience. What I'd like to do is talk some more about those lessons that you've learned and what your estimate is of why your production halved in one year while the market continued to march on and everybody else around you, I assume, appeared to be doing well. What happened? What were the lessons? What do you think happened?
1: Yeah, there's a lot to it. First of all, to your point there, I have actually found that this year, and this in some ways gave me some solace that I wasn't alone in this, but I've had conversations with a multitude of different agents across the valley. And there's a lot of people having the kind of year that I had this year. Some agents that were doing extremely well the same years that I was doing very well had the same thing happen. Their business dropped in half. I have some other agents that are friends of mine that do huge production, you know, 50 million plus. And this year they had huge goals, you know, to get into, you know, 60, 70, $80 million. And they stayed basically right on par with where they were last year, which by their measure is a failure, not a success, even to be at the same level. So that really got me thinking. And I think the easiest answer for me would be that, oh, well, something happened in the market. It's not just me. Okay, well, then I guess it is what it is. That was where I wanted to go with this because then that let me off the hook. And I've run some numbers on some things and I'll kind of explain some other factors here that I do think are relevant, but I do not believe are the real reason. So we have a couple of different things in our market that are happening. And I don't know if they're happening across the country, but it is kind of a big deal over here. We have two new companies that have really just come to the market last year, and this year they came in big. And they are they're kind of like an investor. Um, one is called Open Door. The other one is OfferPad. And they will purchase somebody's house from them, obviously, at a reduced price. And then they resell it on the market. Well, in 2016, I looked at it just for the city of surprise. In 2016, this company, Open Door, did 50. In 2017, they did 85. The other one, OfferPad, did 10 and 16, and they did 25. And this is just listings. This isn't even counting the buyers that they have taken in because they will basically the whole idea is that a buyer can just walk into the house. It's an open house at any time of the day. They can just walk in. They don't have to have an agent, and so you lose out on the buyer side too. So in total, between the two of them, they've constituted for about 150 of the sales that happened out here this year. Which is a lot of sales, but relative to thirty-three or thirty-four hundred sales, that's not a huge percentage. I mean, they're only like three or four percent of the market on total for what they're doing out here. But that's one hundred and fifty less transactions that would have gone to other agents. We have also had a huge influx of agents that are coming onto the market as new licensees, and so I added that up. So in twenty sixteen, looking at unique agents, basically, you know, individual one-off transactions, or I guess I should say, individual one-off. Agents and then kind of counting up how many transactions they did, there were 1,472 unique agents in Surprise. In 2017, there were 1,543. So it's only about a 5% gain. But add that to what Open Door and OfferPad are doing, we're starting to kind of get into and encroach on the amount of transactions available to the agents that are out there. So again, I say that only to say that there is this stuff as a factor. I don't think it is the reason why I have dropped as much as I have, but I think it is, I think it is contributing to whatever is going on in the market. But if I really am being totally honest with myself, taking all of this other stuff out of it, I think what happened is that I got lazy. And I don't mean, I don't mean from a work standpoint, because I've done three times the amount of open houses this year that I did last year. I did a bunch of really different sort of things that I had never done before, like from a marketing standpoint or whatever. So I was definitely not lazy from, I mean, I was trying a bunch of different stuff. I think I got mentally lazy. I brought on Rachel, who's my assistant, and there's a lot of stuff that I would have normally done that I started having her do not because I didn't have time to do it, but because it was more convenient to have her do it. And that's all well and good when it's things like setting up a handyman or calling up and following up on a showing. But when I'm having her follow up on a Zillow lead, when that should be me calling to follow up on them, because I'm the team leader and I'm also the producing agent. That should be me. I think I rested on my laurels and assumed that what I had done in the past was going to work this year. And I'm not going to say that it didn't work. but there was, uh, something was different and I wasn't aggressive enough in trying to figure that out. Um, Or I guess I should say I wasn't aggressive enough in trying to figure out and doing something about it. I think all year I was trying to figure out what it was, but I wasn't taking the necessary actions to keep aggressively going after it. And there's a lot of reasons for that. To give myself some benefit of the doubt or some bit of a pass in this is, You know, those first three years, I really went gangbusters and I worked my tail off to get the business that I had. And I think I just, I don't think I ran out of steam as much as I just gained the perspective that in all of this, the transactional success, sales success, did have another cost. And that was my stress level and my family time. And so, again, I don't wallow in this year and feel like, oh, woe is me. I mean, I feel like I, want to figure out what happened and I want to do something about it. But at the same time the perspective that I gained was that there's a lot to be said about doing less transactions and having more of a life. And that's okay too. You know, I I feel like I did get to see my wife and son more this year. I worked less hours per week this year. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that I, you know, didn't do nearly as many transactions, but also because I have Rachel and she's able to take a lot of the miscellaneous Arbitrary work off my plate so that I can do other things. So, you know, when I'm reassessing for 2018, I'm going, okay, well, I did 80 transactions in 2016, and then I have to go at what cost? And then some of this stuff is intangible. What do I want in 2018? Do I want to get back to 80 transactions? Yeah, I would love to get back to 80 transactions. Do I want to get to 100? Absolutely. Do I want to get to 100 transactions at the cost of my stress again? At the cost of my family time again? No, I definitely don't. So it's like, it's trying to find this place. And this is why I really think that, that, hopefully my interview resonates with somebody. Cause I think there's other agents who go through this. And I think if you just look at the divorce rate amongst realtors, if you look at the, I actually just saw a thing published by NAR the other day, the higher percentage of opioid use amongst real estate agents than the average public. And I'm like, there's reasons. You're burying yourself into things and and you're letting this, what could be a beautiful career and a beautiful life, overrun you and you're turning to other things or you're not being there with your family the way you should because you're so busy working and we're constantly chasing that next big thing. I mean, the beautiful thing about this business is that there's so much business to be had and so much money to be made. The Deleterious effects of that can absolutely wipe away everything that you've worked for. And so when I say that 2017 was a perspective-gaining year, that's why. Because my production dropped in half, and that sucked. I also got more of a life, which was great. Now, where's the balance point? What the How can I strike both different parts of my desires, my needs, and feel good and feel fulfilled about both of them? I know that that's in there somewhere. I mean, there's a lot of people who like to believe there's an A and a B option. And I refuse to believe that there's only an A and a B option. There's always a C option, and that's something other than one or the other. And so this year, as I've been writing out my goals, and I'm still very much in the mix of that, it's been a lot more calculated than it has in previous years. I've always set big, audacious goals, and I'm definitely... Writing big goals, but I'm also assessing the cost in a different way than I ever have before. And because I I think part of the reason why 2017 faltered is because instead of saying, okay, I need to reassess the goals that I set for myself, I basically just mentally gave up and said it's going to be what it's going to be, and that's not the right answer. And so I'm trying to decide in advance what my goal is, and what I'm willing to give up for that. What is, the, what is the cost I'm willing to pay from a personal standpoint, not just a monetary? So anyway, I hope that that answers the question to some degree.
0: I love the soul searching and working through the challenge. And it's good. Thank you so much for doing that with us. So let me ask this. What are you going to do differently in 2018 than you did in 2017?
1: I'm going to be less distracted. One thing I did the beginning of this year that I really believe, and I guess I didn't get to this in all of that talking I was doing, one thing that I think I did wrong this year is I tried too many different things. I tried different seminars. I was doing a seller seminar, trying to get people looking to sell their house and kind of give them the step-by-step on what they need to do. I think the idea is great. I still stand by it that I think the idea is good, but I just... In order for it to be effective, and I don't know how one would make it effective, or I guess I should say successful, getting people to actually show up, it requires something different to me that I don't think I have, or I guess I should say I don't really want to do. So that was one thing I was doing. I was teaching Financial Peace University, which is the Dave Ramsey class, which was a distraction, just trying to get people to it, trying to do all this stuff in order to have a successful class. I was doing that. I was doing, just trying other different lead sources I think I switched between three or four different online systems, and nothing was giving me the results, and none of it was, none of it. I guess it was all so distracting all at once, and trying to do too many things. So that in 2018, I know what works. I know my numbers. I mean, I have, I have more detailed numbers on my business from the very start than I've really ever seen anybody keep. So it's it's like I know what the answers are. I just need to go to them and say. These are the, call it, five lead sources that I know work. And then here are the other five that I'm also going to do in addition to that, that will bring in kind of the ancillary, you know, frosting on top. And that's what I'm going to do in 2018. I know what works. I just need to do it. And on top of that, I'm going to really be much more regimented in saying that this is, this is my lead generation schedule. I've been very consistent. Um, Since I got started, I've been extremely consistent with my open houses. I've not been as consistent with the other forms of lead generation. So that'll be a big difference in 2018 as well. And the other thing, and I think this is probably the most important thing, I'm going to take back what I know I should have been doing. I'm going to take back all lead generating activities, including the follow-up. We've stopped spending money on Zillow because it's, to me, a, a catastrophic waste for us and our team. And so we stopped spending money there. But any of the leads that we do have that come in, because we still get you know calls for our list, on them, I'm going to be taking those as opposed to expecting somebody else to. Because even though I think all the other people that I have that could take those calls can take the calls, if I want to grow this business, I've got to take that back. Because I know what I can convert. And I know the types of conversations that I have with people. And so I'm going to be approaching things much more like I did when I was first getting started. and. And really looking at Rachel's role for what it is, and that is to take the excess off of me, not what I find convenient to give her. So I think between all of those different things, we're going to have a much different sort of year because it'll be more focused instead of being kind of haphazard and sort of shotgun approach.
0: What I'm hearing there is that you're going to focus on narrowing down your sources of lead generation and reacquiring and focusing on lead conversion. And I'll mention that. Uh, some of the top people I've ever spoken with the very last thing that they will ever delegate out is lead conversion because it's the most profitable and then of course the next most profitable is the lead generation and it sounds like that's the conclusion you're coming to just a quick note uh, you mentioned that you're going to focus down to five and then add another five that sounds like ten to me which still sounds like too many maybe you need to narrow down a little more what are your top three lead generators you said you have a lot of great statistics what are they
1: yeah so let me let me clarify that so you're right if i were trying to focus on 10 you're absolutely right that'd be that would definitely be too much so when i set my goals i break it down by lead source i don't just say i want to do x number of transactions i actually dissect it and go okay this is how many transactions i want to do this is where these transactions are going to come from so there are a couple of different lead sources that I just know are going to give me. They're going to give me business, and they don't necessarily require effort on my part. And those would be, and not not like they don't require anything because you still have to convert them. But things like sign calls, you know, because we're not spending money on Zillow anymore, we still get Zillow closings, or I guess I'd say closings that we can attribute to Zillow because they're calling us on our listing. Those are going to be things that happen and they're going to make up a percentage of it. So in my list of lead sources that I have that we're projecting for goals, I really only have about five or six that I'm going to be putting very direct prospecting effort into or spending money on to market to. So my top three without question, number one is my open houses. Number two is my past clients and personal referrals. And then the third, it has been online because we have had some success with Zillow, and I can get into this if you'd like me to, but Zillow has deteriorated in a way that has forced us to say this is just not anywhere we're going to spend another dollar so I'm basically cutting that out as a lead source not only because of what I just said there with its success deteriorating, but I've also determined that I just hate that type of business it's I don't know it feels so impersonal to me I am such a a relationship guy. And I know that once you establish your pipeline and once you establish your pot of leads that you're pulling from, it's your job from that point forward to build a relationship. But because my type of call-it-sales approach is very relational from the outset, I have much better success meeting somebody in an open house and establishing that relationship right from the outset. Much better success focusing on my past clients and referrals, because it's, again, it's all personal. And then the other different lead sources, you know, kind of underneath those, I have, you know, like I'm farming into my very direct neighborhood here. I'm kind of like hyper local farming. I'm also going to be taking different approach to expireds and cancels and FISVOs, which is much more relational, and it's one that I know can be effective because I have been successful with it in the past. I'm just taking a different approach to it this year that will be more relational than I did in the past because just like with Zillow calls or online calls of any sort, sitting there and hammering out 100 cold calls in a day is very impersonal. And to me, it's the type of work I don't... It's not just that I don't enjoy it. I'm fine doing work I don't enjoy, but if I'm going to put my head down and focus on a certain activity, especially the kind of activity that's going to bring me in business, I want it to be in the types of business that I want to do. I, I know that if I hate making cold calls, I'm not going to make them regularly. I'm extremely consistent about my open houses because I love doing them. I'm extremely consistent about staying in touch with my past clients and sphere of influence because I enjoy those. And so everything I'm looking at, I'm going, okay, what lead sources are there that I know work and I know from my own data that I do something with it and make it work? And then what can I do to make that fit into the type of approach that I want to take? You know, what can I do to make an expired or a canceled call more the style of of my approach? And so that's that's where I'm at with this year is is looking at these top things and going, okay, these are the ones that I'm gonna pull business from and this is gonna be my approach to every single one of these.
0: Nate, let me ask a couple questions. I know you're a numbers guy. You keep incredible stats. You've sent me some over the years, which have always been very impressive and phenomenal that you you keep such detailed records. So I want to know the first question, open houses last year, what percentage of your business?
1: In 2016 numbers?
0: Yeah, the year that was really big, the 80 units, uh, what percentage was open houses?
1: So I break these down, probably no surprise to you. (laughs) Uh, by closings, by commissions, and by sales volume. So it's all relatively close. But when you start to break them apart, you can see the little nuanced differences and kind of figure out other. You can tell a different story by being able to figure that out. But by closings, it's thirty percent. By commissions, it was twenty-eight percent, and by sales volume was thirty-one percent. So all right around that thirty percent range. And I've got some others that are much further apart from each other when I break them apart that way. But but by closings, it was like I said, it was uh, 30%. This year, if I'm looking at 20, let's see here, if I'm looking at 2017 numbers, open houses constitute uh, right at about the same, 28%. So that's kind of where I've been every year, even 2014, my first year, it was it was somewhere between 30 and 35%. But I think in 2015. It was about 30% of my business in closings, but it was almost 40% in commissions.
0: Let's just sit there for a minute on the open houses. So in 2016, 30% of your business, 80 closings. We're talking about 24 closings for the year, about two closings a month. How many open houses were you holding in 2016 that were generating the two closings a month? In a month, how many open houses would you hold? Is it every weekend?
1: So this is where it gets interesting. I would have thought, because I was tracking things differently in 2017 than I was in 2016, I would have thought the business that I had coming, in, the closing that I was getting, was coming from the open houses I was doing, except that in 2016, I only did 35 total open houses. I had gotten so busy doing other stuff, this is the tale of most agents, they get so busy doing other things that they stop doing the thing that brought them into business, which will sort of explain another factor for why 2017 was probably not as good. So where I'm going with this is that the 24 closings that we had in 2016 from open houses came from largely, not entirely, but largely from the open houses that I did in 2015. So in 2015, I did almost 80 open houses. In 2016, I did 35 open houses. But the business that I got in 2016 from the open houses came from the work that I was doing in 2015. And what really told me this story beyond just the fact that I was really diving in further into the numbers was that I was tracking something different in 2017, which is probably the best possible thing that I, that I could track that I never did before. And that came from an idea that one of my other agent friends had out here, which is tracking days in market. So that's the time from when I meet somebody to the time that they actually write a contract. So I will say naively and I will say anecdotally, I was taking the best closings that I had from open houses and that was constituting what I would assume would have been the days in market because I had closings where I'd meet somebody at an open house. By the end of that week, they were already under contract and you know, 15 or 20 days later, they had closed. And so I was thinking, Somebody's going to be much further down the sales pipeline if they come into an open house. I was thinking they come in, they're pretty much ready to do something. That's why they're coming in in person. But what I really found is that it's actually quite the opposite. I have my average days in market is 320 days from the time that I meet somebody at an open house to when they close. So that's almost a year cycle for me to meet somebody and have them actually close on a deal or I actually write a contract. So. I did 84 open houses this year in 2017. And so, my hope for 2018, given the fact that I know my days in market is almost a year, it should start to really come to fruition in 2018. So, I'm really, really heavy into my open houses and I'm really heavy into figuring out what works, why it works, what days are best, all of that stuff. And so, there's a lot more detail I can give you if you want it. It's just It wasn't as easy to just answer it and say, these open houses I did in 2016 brought me business in 2016.
0: Hey, Nate, a quick question. Have you ever taken the DISC profile test, the DISC?
1: (laughs) Yes, I have. And what do you score? I'm assuming you think I'm a high C, huh?
0: (laughs) Yeah, what do you score? Are you a C?
1: You know, no, I'm not. C is amazingly my lowest. Wow. Wow. I am an IFDC. And I don't know how that's possible. Want to retake uh, that test? Given. What's that?
0: <laughs> you want to retake that test?
1: Here's the thing I've been as detail oriented into these types of numbers for years before ever taking the disc profile. I mean, I probably should retake it because it's been a couple of years, but it's really strange because. The disk profile, when I read through it, it fits me to a T. I'm definitely a high I, which I think another strange part of that is that a high I is typically extremely extroverted, and I am actually quite introverted, which makes it odd that open houses work so well for me, but there's more to that. But yeah, I don't know. I just feel like numbers tell the story.
0: That's very good. I'm sorry. I took us on a little detour there. Let me ask something about this number that you came up with, or this term, or this analytic, which is kind of interesting, this days in market. You said yours is 320 for your open house leads. Is the 320 for all of your leads or just the open house leads? And how does that compare to one of your other lead sources?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I track that all, I break it all down by lead source for days in market. And again, just to make sure that that term makes sense to people, that is from when I meet them to when they write a contract, not when they close when they write an accepted contract i should say so that would be either uh, an accepted purchase contract or that they've signed a listing with me and then i break that down by lead source so the highest one that i have is actually my sign calls and the sign calls are fairly small sample size cuz i only have three closings from sign calls this year but that one's at about 800 days so i had a lady that i met as a sign call in september of 2014 that i closed in October of this year. And so that's the type of thing that I sometimes get is people that are very, very long now, which gets back to building a relationship with them. But maybe these numbers would be different for somebody else. But I think because of the fact that I am such a relationship guy, maybe that is just occurring to me as I'm thinking about it. That might be why these days are so long. Because I don't just throw somebody into a, you know, into a system and have it follow up with them and So I'm not picking up just the most recent stuff. I mean, I've built relationships with these people over years. And that's what I think is causing the days to be high. But if you look at Zillow, my average days on market, which this is counterintuitive to what a lot of other people have told me. Um, A lot of other people have told me that their Zillow leads or their online leads of whatever source are about a year out, a year to 18 months. Mine's only 14 days. My referrals are right at about 90 days see here, expired and canceled. I've got that at 12 days, eight days for past clients, which is not surprising because I count that. That starts basically when they let me know they're thinking of doing something to when they write a contract. So that one's a lot quicker. but, But yeah, I mean, my average, if you take all of my closings, my average is 181 days. So about six months.
0: Very good. And it's interesting that you've broken it out that far. Your core business is open houses, and it has a, a one-year lag between the time you meet them and the time they go under contract. Your past clients and referrals, though, is very fast with these, especially these referrals. So that's interesting. You picked that as number two. Now Zillow, that's also a quick, 14 days. However, you said that you're not interested in continuing that. So tell us more about what your analysis is of these Zillow leads.
1: Absolutely. So, first of all, I'm certainly not one of these people who believes in any sort of conspiracy theory. But I think that businesses have their models. And I think Zillow has a model that's probably changing. And I think that there's some guidance on their part into, and this is my theory, but into the way that they're distributing leads. Because the people that I've talked to who have had success with it, who are running these big teams, and Zillow they will tell you directly. Like they've told me when I've talked to them, they talked to my lender and told him the same thing. Talked to other agent friends of mine and they tell them the same thing. So they want to work with big teams for a good reason, I think, because I think big teams typically have good models following up their leads. And so anyways, I look at my friend who's doing extremely well with Zillow. He's got a great ROI. He's, I mean, he's having just monster success with it. And then there's me. So in 2014, we had, let's see, 2014, or I'm sorry, 2015, we didn't spend anything with Zillow in 14. In 15, we spent $5,000 and got 13 closings from Zillow. In 2016, we spent $10,000 or $11,000, I'm sorry, and got 14 closings. So we spent more than twice as much and we got one more closing out of it. In 2017, we spent $10,000 with Zillow and we got four closings out of it. So they change their algorithms all the time. They change how they charge you. They change the way that they base impressions. And there's a lot of the stuff that makes sense just from a supply and demand standpoint, because that's that's what they have. That's what they sell is leads. And there's obviously an increased demand, but that sort of return is not good enough for me. If I look at my average cost per closing from Zillow, it's 2,600 bucks. My average lead cost from Zillow is eighty-six bucks. And I look at ten grand and go, how else could I spend ten grand? And I think that there's a lot of ways that I could spend ten grand that will get me far, far better return than what I've gotten with them. So and on top of that, and I'll just try and keep this to a minimum as much as I can because I'm not trying to slam Zillow, but they have royally screwed a lot of agents that I've talked to in a lot of different ways and they I feel like they are lacking in their moral compass as business, and I have just chosen that they are not a company I wanna do business with. So you can cut this part out of the interview if you want, (laughs) because I don't don't want it to sound like I'm just trying to slam a a major force in the real estate industry, but I've just, I really, really don't think that they care about us. And that's unfortunate given that we're the ones that are paying their bills.
0: Well, Nate, I appreciate that. we're looking for your opinion, so I'm going to be leaving that in there. I just got to say, I don't know what that dispersonality personality profile said, but you are super analytical. You're sharing a lot of incredible numbers with us. And if I remember, you know, we've been talking quite a bit over the years. And if I remember, you had some type of software program that you put together, you know, it was just for yourself, uh, an analysis sheet. What was that thing called? And has that had any effect on what you're doing today?
1: Yeah. So the system that I have, I have just basically termed it as the brain, um, and I call it that because it is a really and truly every micro detail of my business. I mean, there's almost no question that somebody can ask me about my business that I don't know the answer to. If not offhand, all I have to do is refer to my to my system. But yeah. So th- this system is called the brain, and at the beginning of this year. I kind of finally realized that it was something that I felt like was worth doing something more with than just using it myself because of how many people had asked me if, if they could have one or if I could build it for them or whatever. And uh, so I spent, I will say, all of February building this out to be a system that could be translated into multi-person use. It could be built for teams and it didn't have to be just built for my, for my business. It could be basically used by anybody and my intent was to sell it because I knew that I couldn't, I didn't want to give up my real business, my real passion, which is selling real estate to build a software system. But at the same time, I knew that there was a lot there and there was a lot of reason and I think people could benefit from it, but it was a big distraction. And again, being honest with myself and you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I do think it had an effect on my year because i was very distracted by it some of the i will say some of the most valuable months of the year are at the beginning part of the year because then that's where you're front loading your lead gen and i was busy building my system and i will say sadly it didn't go anywhere because it's a lot harder road to hoe than what you think going into it people aren't as excited by numbers as i am and in order for it to be what it really needs to be in order to be an effective product, it needs to be on the web, and mine isn't. It's built out of Excel, but I will just say, and maybe I'm partial to it because I built it, but it it's a system like nothing else I've ever seen. It's pretty cool.
0: Well, it sounds to me like as far as real estate and real estate production, you got a bit distracted into a, another passion, putting this together and, and analyzing the business, and it took you off your game a little bit. Would that be accurate?
1: That would absolutely be accurate. My, um, my, one of my best friends, who's also the lender I use for everything, he's been really, if I were to define a mentor in my life, or certainly in this business, it would be him. And the whole time, he just kept telling me, he's like, you know, don't get too distracted. Don't get too distracted. And what did I do? I got distracted. <laughs> <laughs> so.
0: Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Well, Nate, I have another question for you, and, and I hope this is not too personal, but you mentioned at the very beginning that early in, This year, 2017, if I got the dates right, your brother left the team. Was that a a difficulty? Was that a challenge?
1: Um. Yes.
0: Do you think that threw you off your game?
1: No, I don't think it threw me off my game. In fact, if anything, I would have thought it was going to go the opposite way, not because it, it certainly says nothing bad about my brother. It was that I this would have been the first time that I felt full control over my team because I was always mindful of the fact that my brother was my brother and I didn't want him to feel like, especially because he's my older brother, I didn't want him to feel like he was kind of riding the coattails of his little brother. And so I was always mindful of keeping him involved in decision-making and all that. And so I actually felt the freedom to just have it be my team And at the same time, I was also very excited for him because him getting into real estate gave him the, kind of finally got him out of the rut that he was in working in corporate America and finally got him out on his own being an entrepreneur. And so he's doing very well with his team. It's a small team, him and his wife and his brother-in-law. So that part was good. It was somewhat emotional only in that. It was yet another, call it, business venture that my brother and I did together that didn't quite work out as we had expected it to, Um, but that's just part of learning, I guess. Um, Everybody tells you that you got to be careful you know, working with your family, and sometimes you just have to figure it out, but it ended amicably, I'll put it that way, Um, and I'm there as support for him, and he's there as support for me, and now we can just, I guess, enjoy the fact that we're both in the same industry and learn from each other.
0: I want to get back to a couple quick questions here on production numbers from the past. So open houses were uh-huh. 30% 2016, 17% 2018. You said the second thing you're going to do in the new year is pass clients and referrals. What percentage of your business was that in 2016 and 17?
1: 2016. So I break them out separately from one another, but I really lump them together in terms of the way that I think about them because I think it's the same basic approach in working with them. So if I'm looking at closings, 2016 was 23% referral, 9% past clients, and my sphere of influence is 5%. So basically call it 35-40% of everything came from those three lumped together. Amazingly, in 2017, I didn't have a single closing from my sphere, which is sort of pathetic. But but as a percentage, my personal referral was, again, the exact of what it was last year, which was 23%. Past clients were 8%. And then I've actually broken out this year, lender referral and agent referral, because it's kind of all, again, lumped together. So in total, it's somewhere between 35 and 40%. Truthfully, I would love it if as I go on in my career that that starts to supplant my open houses in terms of being my number one lead source because that's the best business you're ever going to get and it doesn't require the same output as an open house does because an open house can be a considerable amount of work and a considerable amount of time too. So anyway, my goal um, ultimately, I want to get my business to be in about 60% between past clients, sphere of influence,
0: and referrals. Just a, a quick observation on your big picture uh-huh. here, looking forward, a recommendation, although you didn't ask me for one, I'm going to give just a fast recommendation <laughs> based on what it's you've just cool. stated. I mean, while well, you're talking about 60, 70, almost 80% of your business is coming from open houses, past clients, referrals, and sphere of influence, which are really two categories. Why would you not just spend all of your time doubling down on those and making those a huge success and digging into your past clients' sphere of influence for referrals and doing the open houses to bring in new business? It sounds to me like you should simplify, and that would be a simple solution. Mm -hmm. What do you think?
1: Yeah. So, first of all, that's the same exact determination that I had made at the beginning of 2017.
0: That's not what you did in 2017. In 2017, you said you experimented with a lot of different lead sources.
1: I got distracted, I know.
0: <laughs> As we all do,
1: right. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the one thing that I did not get distracted on that I chose to double down on, given that it was my number one lead source, is open houses. And so here's, other than tracking days in market, which is huge for me, I went way more granular this year on my open house uh, analysis than I ever have before. And so these will be really good numbers for anybody who wants to know what days they should be doing open houses. So I did say for sure to my wife back in 2015 that I would never work a Sunday again. And I don't regret that at all. So I don't work Sundays. So I don't do open houses on Sundays. And so that leaves me in terms of weekend days, only one day a week, which is Saturday to do my open houses. Which again, if I'm working every single Saturday, that starts to become a problem with my work-life balance. So I didn't work every single Saturday, but I did 21 open houses on Saturdays. I did 29 on Thursdays, 26 on Wednesdays and eight on Fridays. So in total, I did 84 open houses. So here's where it gets really interesting. So my lead by day, I do kind of ra- I-, I figure out ratios and averages. So average leads per day on Wednesdays is 0.7 average lead per day on Thursdays is 0.7, Friday is 0.6, and Saturday is 1.3. So basically less than a lead a day on midweeks. Fridays are a total crapshoot. I just chose not to do them because they're so incredibly dead. So here's where it gets really interesting, my in terms of my conversion. So for Wednesdays my lead to closing ratio is nine to one. Thursday is twenty to one. Saturday is four to one. So I'm getting more leads on Saturdays and my ratio is four times as good as Thursdays and twice as good as Wednesdays. Problem is there are only 52 Saturdays. So I doubled down and I figured I'm just going to do a bunch of open houses during the week to try and make up for that. Well, the fact that I did all of that work and if you add it up, so my average open house, four to five hours. Hour to set up, hour to take down, call it somewhere between six and seven hours. I did 63 weekday open houses, which comes out to somewhere between 300 and 350 hours that I gave up doing that for three closings.
0: This is really interesting, though. I mean, thank you for the stats, and and I'm grateful that you are so analytical. So basically what I just wrote down there is the number of leads that you're receiving per open house is twice as high as on Saturday. As it would be during the week, you know, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.6 uh-huh. is twice that. Ends up being 1.3, and then also your conversion for Saturday leads uh, is double or even better than that, four to one versus nine to one, or I think it was twenty to one. That's pretty impressive. That's a confirmation that you should be doing Saturdays. It's too bad you don't have Sunday stats because I'm assuming that they would be as good as Saturday or maybe slightly better. For someone who's thinking about working on the Sunday, have you considered not doing anything during the week as far as opens and instead doing, say, an early day Saturday and a late day Saturday, two different open houses on Saturday?
1: No, I haven't. I've never tried two open houses on a Saturday. I would be really curious to talk to somebody or hear of people who have. It has never made logical sense to me that doing two open houses, two separate open houses, would bring you more business than doing one super long open house. Maybe it would, I don't know. But my open houses on Saturdays are from 11 to 4 or 11 to 5, so they're pretty long open houses. And so it doesn't leave me a lot of room because of the way that I set up. I mean, I put out you know 30 signs, and I've got quite a setup at my open house itself. So, I mean, setup and takedown is about an hour each side of that. so. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be curious to, again, to talk to somebody else because, yeah, Wednesdays and Thursdays, not that they're bad. You're still getting closings from it. That counts for something, but yeah, that's a lot of open houses to do.
0: How about this? It'd be hard for you to personally do two. What about one of your buyer agents or your team agents to pick up that second or maybe now three open houses on Saturday?
1: Yeah, so they are going to be doing open houses. In fact, Trevor the guy the the other agent that just came on he's actually um, if there's anybody who matches in personality style when it comes to interacting with people at an open house better than anybody else I've ever met it's this guy he's very personable and um, he doesn't he's not salesy at all exactly the way I am and it's all about building that relationship so he actually got one into escrow I mean he's only been licensed for two months or so and he got one into escrow very very quickly unfortunately it fell through but I think it's a testament to the way he's able to connect, and he's actually got a solid pipeline just from from the open houses he's been doing. So these open houses that I've counted here, these 84, that's me specifically. My buyer's agent, it's kind of a catch-22 because I want her to do open houses because I want her to be able to get some business for herself, but at the same time, also need her to be available to take buyers out on Saturdays when I'm doing open houses, and You know, she's also got to be available on Sundays because buyers are very, you know, heavily weekend time slots that you have to keep open for them. So, you know, and the other thing is, again, I can't, I don't force people to do work and they're going to do it or they're not. And it's on them and the results they get and the money they make or don't. But it's been very hard to try and motivate people to do open houses because when they don't have success for a day or two, they sort of feel like it doesn't work. And that's part of the reason why I track my numbers so much is because it's all a numbers game. Those ratios I gave you, those were leads to closing ratio. If I were to look at open house to closing ratio, it's actually 29 to 1 for Thursdays. Talk about 29 days <laughs> sitting there. 29 Thursdays Almost sitting a there. half <laughs> a yeah, year. Yeah, right. Whereas Saturdays are 4 to 1.
0: Let me ask a couple other quick questions just because I'm curious. In Arizona. Does the state require that someone holding an open house have a real estate license? Can you put a non-licensed person in there?
1: No, they have to be licensed.
0: Okay. Can you pay some of the other people, say some of the people are having a slower time, could you pay them per hour to sit there for you and hold the open house? Maybe some of the other agents in the office?
1: Uh, I guess I could, but then I wonder what they get out of sending me the business that they procured.
0: Money. They get paid uh, $20 an hour or whatever it is.
1: Right. No, right. I'm, I'm just saying, like, I mean, I guess they could do that. Just. I don't know. I just feel like part of the reason why I'm successful doing open houses, and I do know that on the whole compared to, because I, I know a lot of people's numbers with open houses, my success is, is higher than the average for how many Conversions I'm able to get out of it, and so I think part of that is not only because of my approach, but also because of the fact that I know that I'm going to get paid off of it, not just you know on an hourly basis. And I just find that somebody just sitting there, because I mean I don't know if you've gone into any open houses, but most of them I walk into the agents just a bump on a log. Even if I'm just (laughs) in patron mode and I'm not even looking like a realtor, I come in, they don't even get up from their chair. It's like they're just there. They're not going to convert anybody so I think, and I'm probably going backwards here, but it comes down to, again, the way that I am setting my goals in 2018 is different than the way I set my goals in years past because I'm looking at it going, am I the tortoise or am I the hare? If I'm the tortoise, I'm hiring people to do open housing for me. I'm paying for as many leads as I can get, convert as many of them as I can out of that. Whatever falls off, falls off. I'm the tortoise. And I think I was the hare in the past. I mean... Jumping up to 80 in my second full year was pretty damn good. But I just feel like I would rather do the kind of business that I want to do with people that I want to do the business with. And if I work hard enough at it and consistent enough at it, then maybe someday I'll be like my buddy Tim Raider out of Omaha who does over 100 transactions a year just out of his network. And guy works, you know, 40 hours a week. That's the life that I want. And I think the way that I get there is by being the tortoise and by being okay that I'm only going to get so many closings by this because it's, you know, this is not scalable business, the type that I'm doing. Seth Godin, who is one of my absolute favorite, if probably not my absolute favorite authors, he has this philosophy, which is one that I... I really live by, which is that some of the best business there is, is the kind that is not scalable. It just isn't. But it's also the, those are the deepest roots. If you look at a business as a tree, a tree that has a huge umbrella, but no root system, when the wind blows, it's going to blow over. Even if the storm isn't that bad, it's going to blow over. But if you have a tree that maybe grows a little bit slower, but it's got a hell of a root system that's really, really deeply entrenched, it can withstand the biggest storms that are there. It can take the highest wind force. It can take rain coming down sideways at it, and it's not going to blow over because it has a really deep root system, and I look at a business the same way. I mean, just look at how many people... If you just look at the amount of bankruptcies and foreclosures that realtors went through during the Great Recession, some of these people that were doing astronomical business, but they, they fell over when the wind blew. I don't want to be one of those guys. I want the kind of business that is built on relationships. That's the kind that is going to have the deepest roots. That's the kind that's going to withstand it if or when we go through. Hopefully, it's not as bad as 2008, but there will be another recession. And Just a year like I've had this year was the perspective-gaining year that I needed to realize that I can't just rest on, yeah, well, my efforts are going to bring in the business. It's kinda of like the idea like you can't out earn your stupidity. Well, to me, I was being sort of lazy this year and sometimes you can't outwork laziness either. Which sounds kind of like a contradictory way of putting it, but you can work and be lazy at the same time. You can work, be doing the effort, but be missing in that critical part which is the mindset portion of it, and you're gonna be In no good shape for that either. So, to me, I want to have my mindset right, which is that I am out to set relationships with these people that I'm meeting. And if it happens quickly, it happens quickly. If it doesn't happen quickly, it doesn't happen quickly. That's fine with me. All that I can do is keep doing the type of work, and I think my numbers bear it out that my business is a relationship business. And part of the reason why the prospecting side of things is heavier right now than the referral side of things is because I just don't have much time in the business. But if I can continue to to nurture those relationships and build a, a root system that is so deep that that I'm going to have a lasting business. Like I said, like my buddy Tim, like that's what I want. And I'm just at this place in my mind where I'm okay if it takes longer to get there. Would I want to get to 100 transactions by next year? Absolutely. And that's what I was striving for in 2017 and I didn't get there. But if it takes me, you know, until 2020 to get to 100 transactions but I got there the way that I want to get there, I'm more okay with that than sacrificing what I know I don't want to sacrifice to get there.
0: Well, Nate, let's switch gears. You've mentioned a lot about open houses. And let's talk about what you're doing in open houses to be so successful in generating so many leads and conversions. Now, you've mentioned that the percentage of your business is approximately 30%. What are you doing in the event itself to make
1: it work? Yeah. So it's actually, I'm not accumulating a mass pot of leads. That's for sure. I mean, 0.7 and even on a good day, 1.3 as an average is not what I would define as a high amount of leads relative to the work that it takes to get there. One thing that I have always found to be my reason for being successful in sales is that more than knowing who to put my energy into, I feel like I have a really good radar for who not to put my energy into and I think that that is probably more important. So to me, what I define as a lead is not just somebody who came in the door. I get a lot more people in the door than I get to sign in and I don't register everybody because I don't want everybody. I want only those people that I feel like I have the the seedling of a relationship with. And those are the people that I ask to sign in because I have established something so that when I get their information, it's most likely going to be their name, phone number, address, email, everything because I've established trust. So that's not necessarily what you asked me, but that's to clarify that I don't have a ton of leads. My conversion is good, but my conversion is good because I knew who to focus on. So what I do at the open house, I mean, it starts with signage. I mean, you could be the best realtor in the world. You could be the best relationship starter in the world. You could be—you could have the best setup with the best marketing material. And if you don't have enough signs to get them in the door, they're not coming. Out here in our market, um, there's a lot of realtors who do three and four signs, and they wonder why nobody comes in. Well, it's because nobody can find them. And worse yet, sometimes they'll spread out those three or four signs over a mile, and it's like, well, you've got 14 streets in between with nothing. So... To me, I want a sign in every direction that I can for about a mile out. And for me, for the neighborhoods that I work, that's somewhere between 20 and 30 signs. I will never do an open house with less than 20, I can say that for sure, because that's not enough. So 20 to 30 signs, I have a whole setup. I keep all of my stuff, it's kind of my open house kit in a box, ready to go. Makes it easy for one, Um, but for two, it's just, it's consistent. So... I've got marketing material about me and my team. I've got a seller guide on how to prep the house for the market. I've got little stands up, like we we offer certain incentives on our team for people to use us. I've got stuff on there about that. I've got kind of like little, uh, you know, like I do a house value um, thing where it has uh, Zillow, Redfin, and Trulia with three different values for the same house. And it's just a way of saying, look, you don't rely on these statistical analysis that these online websites do. You need a a professional. So these are all things just to get people to either look at and ask questions about or they're conversation tools for me to be able to refer to. And then I've just got the the MLS profile sheet, which is just the detail on it. I don't have a fancy flyer because that feels like a waste of energy and a waste of special color ink to me because they don't really care about it as long as the rest of my material is good. But none of that is the reason why the open houses are successful. That just happens to be the setup that I have because it feels professional. It feels like they're walking into a legit open house, not just a house that a realtor's sitting in. Where the real, true gold is, is in the relationship you establish. And obviously, some people you're going to have, you know, a minute to spend some time with. As other people come in, and other people you're going to have. Literally, I've had people stay as long as 45 minutes or an hour just chatting. And I have a ton of people that are in my pipeline that have never done business with me that I met at an open house. Some of these people have even referred business to me having never done business with me. But it came from them having felt that they trusted me from when they met me at the open house. So my goal is not to get a closing out of the open house. My goal is to establish a relationship. My goal is to have somebody that I can stay in touch with that is not going to dodge my call when I call them or dodge my emails. Seth Godin refers to it as permission marketing. I have the permission to market to this person. I gained that permission because I've gained trust and I gained trust because they could sense from me that I was not out to sell them. So I don't know how you teach that to somebody, but the best way that I can do it is to just say that detach yourself from what you're hoping to get out of it and just attach yourself to not only the process of being there, doing the open house, and understanding that it's a numbers game. It's like going to the gym over and over and over and over. You don't expect biceps in a six-pack. It's just that it's a process, and you've you've got to go consistently in order for it to turn into anything. But that's just the process part. The part that makes it work is the part that's in your head, and without sounding too mushy-gushy about it, Part that's in your heart, like, what do you actually care about? If you actually only care about getting a closing and getting paid on it, then you'll never connect with these people the way I'm connecting with them. Because not that that stuff isn't important to me. I'm obviously a numbers guy. I pay attention to what I make off these things. But that's not what it's about to me. It's about the fact that I'm meeting people who are in a position where they have to sell because, you know, they're going into a retirement home or because of something that's a really big deal to them. And that's the thing that gets lost in real estate. We're so focused on the numbers that we forget that there are humans behind those numbers. There, there are people who have lives that are directly affected by our ability to do our job or not. And when that's what you're focused on when you're in an open house and who this human is that's behind this facade of a lead, that's how you get to the real core of it. And you figure out how you can help these people, what their life means to you. And then you just figure out what the next step is. And so to me, when I meet somebody at an open house, they make it into my registry because either they voluntarily added themselves or because I determined that there's something that I can do to help these people. So when they sign in and I follow up with them, I have an action step because I determined that there was a need and I'm not just staying in touch with some random cold lead on a drip system.
0: That's really uh, interesting. So your whole objective is to make a connection. You're building a relationship. And you're you're really doing that by talking about what people love to talk about, which is themselves. And you're narrowing that down to what is their need in real estate? Why are they in that open house? What are they trying to achieve? What's their goal? And by narrowing in on that, you are, first of all, finding out what their motivation is but for a business. But secondly, you're building that connection by having them talk about what they want.
1: Yes. And I'm not going to say no, but I will say yes, and. There are some very direct examples that I can think of. People who have either not ever done business with me, but have referred me, or have even in some cases made it onto my pie list that I met at an open house. And I've had people that I met in an open house that it was kind of, they were in that boat. They hadn't done anything with me until they did. But it was because it wasn't just real estate that I was focused on. I was focused on who these people are. I was focused on, you know, sometimes it starts with, yeah, what's my house worth because I'm trying to figure out my situation because that's kind of my approach to the whole thing is, what information can I give you so that you can answer your questions? And that that removes the, that sales aspect to it. But sometimes what you figure out in that, I had a lady, it helps that I'm versed in personal finance because of the Dave Ramsey stuff, but I met a, wonderful lady and her husband at an open house and I went over there after the open house, kinda let her know what her house was worth, determined that they're in this kind of really unfortunate financial situation and there wasn't much they could do. Felt stuck and then it was probably five or six months later. I think I had talked to her once in between or something, but somebody came along that wanted her floor plan and it wasn't available. So I approached her and said, Look, here's here's your ability to get the amount that you need, that you want. You don't have to go on the market. And because I'm only doing, just bringing this to you, I'll do it You know, for half just because I understood her situation. I understood there was something I could do to help. And we put this deal together. She got out of that house. She got into the house that financially made her world a million times better, her and her husband. And now she's got a much better life because I was able to help her. And yes, it started because she Wanted to find out what her house was worth, but what it came down to, and I remember standing in her kitchen for an hour just kind of coaching her on personal finance. And here's a lady that's, you know, probably 30 years older than me, and I'm giving her the advice like a son would because I cared about her. And the reason why she trusted me enough to give her that information is because she could tell I cared about her, not because I was some sales guy. So, you know, like I said, these people that I've met that. I've never done business with, never, but I've connected with them. And so every Thanksgiving, I go around and I give them a pie and they invite me in and I'm friends with them, real friends, not like just somebody that I know that's in my database, but like they, they look at my stuff when I'm on Facebook and comment on it because they care about what's going on with me. And I call to check in on them and they answer my calls and they want to talk to me and they ask questions about me and it's just like you can't beat that. And if you just live that, the business, the financial gain that you get out of that part that everybody is seeking, that happens as a byproduct of that. And again, I don't know how to impart that onto somebody other than to just say that unless you actually care, you can't replace what I'm doing. You might get better numbers, you might get more leads, you might do more open houses, and consequently get more closings, but I'm telling you, you can't beat building a database of people better than actually connecting with them. It's just the you know this business is all about trust, and if you can gain that, you'll you'll get ahead.
0: Nate, do you consider the people that you're meeting at the open house who you allow to register and you move the relationship forward? Do you consider these folks
1: friends? Many of them, absolutely, absolutely. It's that's part of what, that's why I said, like at the beginning, one huge difference between 2018 and I won't say 2017, but 2016, 2015 is this kind of like narrow focus. I know I said I have 10, but, you know, call it three to five main ones that I'm focusing on, looking at going, how can I do this in a relational way? How can I do this in a way that is true to who I am and the way that I do business? And for me, open houses have been have been very successful because that, to me, is the most natural way to just get out there and establish a relationship. But I'm looking at all of these different things that I know work. I guess I should say lead sources that I know will yield business. And saying, what can I do to do those things in a way that is tantamount to doing an open house and establishing a relationship from the outset? Seth Godin, I keep referring back to him, but there's just so much material that this guy has. Uh, he's got a book called Purple Cow. Purple Cow is a cow that stands out from the, from the rest. Well, in our business, fired, canceled, Fisbos, Zillow calls, whatever, anything that's cold, you can be guaranteed you're one of a gazillion realtors that's called them. So you are just part of the flock. But when you're the one that's standing out, being different from everybody else, you're going to get the business. And to me, the biggest way to stand out from everybody else is to actually care. And I'm not saying that all the other realtors don't care, but I don't know what their approach is. But a lot of times, certainly from the feedback I've gotten from clients, is that what comes through from me to them is that I care. And so they may care. It maybe just doesn't come through. But for me, I, I don't have scripts. I don't have dialogues. I don't have, I mean, I track my numbers, but I don't treat my people like numbers. I don't treat my clients like a part of a bigger system. You know, I know how many open houses it takes to get a closing, but I don't treat my open house that way. I know how many leads it takes to get a closing, but I don't treat my leads that way. I feel like if I can do whatever it is that I do from a place of genuine, sincere care, I know that that comes through because that's what has... If I look at, and I was just doing that earlier today as I was preparing, I'm looking at all my closings going, where did this one come from? Where did this one come from? It meaning not just the lead source, but like the story behind it. And I'm like, yeah, I have this relationship here and this one led to this and on and on and on. And it, that's the part that makes this business so rewarding. So I just want to do more of that. It's just not scalable and that's okay.
0: You care a lot about the people that you meet in these open houses. You have a lot of pride in what you're doing. You have confidence that you are the only one that can do it the way you're doing it. Do you believe that you could train other people on your team to do these open houses?
1: Yes, I can train people to do the open houses. I can train them on the, call it the specific things that I'm trying to surmise from my conversations with people as I'm there, like, you know, I don't have a specific method, any stretch on the way that I ask questions or the things that I say, but I'm always trying to get to something. I'm always trying to figure out, like I said, how, what I can do to help them, what that next step is. There are things that I can train in that regard, but what I can't train is the, um, I'm trying to remember which book it was. Somebody wrote a book and they said, you can't train, give a damn. And... Fortunately, the people that I do have on my team definitely have give a damn. They definitely do. And that's the only reason why they're on the team because if they didn't have that, I, they definitely would not be. But still, people have different comfort levels. People have different. For me, it's a very natural thing. Like I said in the beginning of this, the previous life I had going around car dealerships really trained me for this. And there's so many parallels because I was walking into a car dealership trying to get business. Whereas here I sit in an open house and people walk into me, but the conversation is still basically starting from zero and working on it from there and some people are uncomfortable with that, and I'm very comfortable with that so Trevor, the new guy on my team there, like I said, he's got it he's got that it factor absolutely hands down, and he will be as long as he keeps his consistency up he will do extremely well because he just he gets it and he does care. He really genuinely cares. Yeah. I want them to be doing the open houses. I want for their sake that they do these open houses because I don't, I don't need their production for me. I want their production for them. And I want those numbers to add to our total team numbers. Cause that's good, but I don't need it for me. I want them to do it.
0: Yeah. I think for just a business perspective and leverage At some point, you're going to have to teach other people on the team how to do these open houses. And you're going to have to be able to transfer your knowledge of how that works, the relationship building, the caring. And basically, you'll be able to do that by creating a culture. That's the key word there is the culture that you want to duplicate. I know I'm looking a little forward, but that's just something to to keep in the back of your mind. Uh, as you're moving forward and building your team. I would like to switch gears here because I don't want to lose out on this. You mentioned you've only been in the business a few years and you've already built up a great past client referral base, your sphere of influence. It's a third plus of your business. And so let's talk about that for a second. What are you doing to get in front of the folks that are in your database, and uh, keep your message to them that you're available to help them. What are you doing there?
1: So it starts with everything I was just saying, and that the relationship is a real one. It's not superficial. So, certainly some of them. Uh, certainly not to say that all of my clients, all my past clients are people that I have these amazing deep relationships with. I just, I would say as a percentage, I have a lot of them that are but um, there's a couple of things that I do that are just kind of part of a, a system or whatever. Like I, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of American Lifestyle Magazine, but it's a, uh, not a subscription-based, but you just pay a monthly fee, or I guess I should say it's an every other month, saying they mail out every two months. And it's something based on the season, and it's got air-out cards with your information, and it's got recipes, and on and on. It's a very nice-looking magazine. I mean, high-quality and it costs me about three bucks a, a magazine. And I send out probably about a hundred of them every two months, every other month. And so that goes out to a lot of my high value past clients and other people that are just kind of part of the database that I want to stay in touch with in that way, but are not necessarily clients. I have a pie list and because it's such a personal thing to me, and this makes it difficult in scaling it and it's going to become a bigger problem every year. But Right now, I do 50 pies a year because I'm literally handing those out, driving out the week of Thanksgiving, my favorite week of the year. It's that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I'm out seeing people, hanging out, catching up with them. I do call people. I am super uncomfortable with the referral call. I'm so uncomfortable that I've never done it, nor will I. I trained with Feeney for a little bit, and that was a difficult thing for my coach to get over. <laughs> it's Also not something that I am willing to do. Not because I think that there's anything wrong with it. I definitely don't. Like I said, I've mentioned Tim. He's the master of that. He is the master of asking for referrals and doing it in a way that's tactful and obviously effective just based off the business that he does. But that's not me. My approach with all of my clients is that I want to be relevant to them, and the way that I'm relevant to them is being of service to them. And on top of that, going back to the way that I met them is showing that I care. So I follow up with these, with my past clients in a way that isn't business-seeking. It's, it's because I care. It's just like I would check in on anybody. Check in on my best friends because... You know, they just had a baby and I care about the fact that they just had a baby. I don't end my call with my best friend saying, hey, by the way, do you know anybody that's looking to buy or sell? I don't do that. And my past clients know what I do. And could I have more business, uh, referral business, if I were to do that? Absolutely. I am fully 100% aware that I would have and could have more referral if I did that, but I won't. Um, and I'm not going to pretend that I will. And so I just choose to do it the way I do it because it, again, it's maybe slower burning, but I hope in the long run it's more effective for me personally in the way that I relate to people. So I tell people, uh, and this is one thing I definitely learned from the Bethany system, is I tell people as I'm getting to know them, especially when I'm sitting down for a, an appointment with them, an interview with them, that this is how my business is built. I let them know that up front that I'm a referral-based guy, and everything I do is. In hopes that they're going to think that I did a good enough job for them that they would be willing to tell somebody else about me, and I'm certainly no slack on the reviews. Like that's huge to me. I would rather ask for a review, and I definitely, definitely do any day over asking for a referral. I think I have 100 and probably 120 reviews on my Zillow page, so we've got a ton of reviews. We got probably 15 or 20 on Facebook. We're just kind of getting the Google reviews up, so I think we're on like four or five on that, but. We always refer everybody back to our reviews on Zillow, and those people say a lot of really nice things there. So part of me asking for reviews, and maybe this is more the subtle way of doing it, and maybe some people would see it as a cop-out, and I guess that's okay, but me asking for a review is certainly implying, indirectly or directly, that I want referrals because it's them telling other people about how I did. And... I can ask for a referral all day. And I have multiple reviews from some people because I've asked them multiple times for different platforms. So I do that. And then other than that, it's, I, I send out a lot of cards, a lot of handwritten cards. I just buy a kind of a whole boatload of gift cards, you know, 5 bucks here, 10 bucks here, 25 or 50 bucks here and there for different things, whether it be gas cards or restaurants. I've got people who anytime send me a referral, I send them a handwritten thank you card with a gift card in there. My cards are branded to me. It's got my logo on there. Always has my business card. I always thank them for the, for the referrals and tell them that that's how my business is built. There's a lot of more like subtle ways that I say it without being so forthright with it.
0: You're sending out pies once a year. You, you do 50 a year. You're driving them out to the folks' homes. Have you ever considered having them come to your location and then maybe doing more pies?
1: Yeah. So that's actually a really good... So, In 2017, part of my distraction, which we didn't talk about this, but it was definitely real. I went from thinking, hey, I live in Surprise, which is the Northwest Valley. Average sales price is like 250. And I was thinking, well, it's only 45 minutes to Scottsdale where the average sales price is 500. So for the last part of 2016 and probably the first quarter, almost first half of 2017, I was putting a lot of energy into Scottsdale, almost like trying to start over, which was a really stupid friggin' idea in the middle of the year and middle of my career. Uh, But my business was so scattered throughout the valley, and this is a—we are geographically the largest city in the country, large metroplex. So I had some clients that were literally sixty-five miles away from me. But I feel really good about the fact that I'm very, very focused geographically now, not just. I mean, I mail out to my specific neighborhood and I'm hyper-targeted on my farming, but really, I'm a West Valley guy. I grew up in the West Valley. I've lived here my whole life. This is what I know. I feel comfortable here. And so consequently, now that I kind of retargeted, that's where the business is coming from. So in the future, absolutely, 100%, that's what I want. I want to be able to hand out 500 pies. And I want them all to be able to come to my office. I want to be able to do those types of events. But the way I started my business, I mean, if you look at my breakdown by city, I mean, it was geographically like a a shotgun. I mean, it was everywhere. And so it was very hard to do that type of event. Whereas I think over the next couple of years, I'll be able to target in and say, we're doing this pie event. We want to be able to get you a pie. But now we have so many clients. And I think people will understand and appreciate why we're doing it that way.
0: Nate? In our conversation, I've noticed that you like to bring people to you. You like to be the host. You like to have these folks at these open houses that are coming to you and meeting you on your terms. Then you're comfortable and you can get to know them. Have you considered developing your past client and sphere of influence business by holding client parties, large events, where you invite people to meet with you wherever that is at a movie theater or? Just a a banquet hall or or wherever, bringing them to you so you could meet with them and also interconnect them at the same time?
1: Yes, I have. If Rachel, my assistant, or my wife were sitting here, they would be smirking and laughing because they know exactly what would be going through my head. Like I said, I'm a high eye on the disc profile, but I am super shy when it comes to those types of things. And I basically, I'm just short of a not a panic attack, but it's super uncomfortable for me. And it doesn't keep me from doing it. And I'll tell you about something I did here in a minute, but there's definite benefit to it. It just needs to be the right venue for me. So we've considered, we're talking about for 2018, doing a bowling event, because that would be more isolated, I, not only for me, like I can go to each individual lane and chat with people. And again, because we're you know, uh, geographically targeting now, that's making it easier. But also, at the same time, I maybe I'm projecting, but I feel like other people would be much more comfortable with that too. Like my clients, I mean, I've heard some of your interviews with people where they, they'll get entire groups together and they, they're they trying to connect them and that makes me want to die. <laughs> I just feel so uh, terrified at the prospect of that. But this year, I put on a, uh, a concert. So I'm actually, a, I'm a pianist and um, one of my friends From high school, her son was diagnosed with cancer and they've been fighting the the battle all year. So I actually put on a a benefit concert and actually invited all my past clients. And so actually we ended up having like 40 or 50 people come and most of them were my past clients. So that's the closest thing I've gotten to it. But again, it was done in a way that wasn't just like, uh, hey, thanks for your business. Uh, I would like to get more business from you. Like it was not business because they were my past clients, but it was done in a way that was not targeted or focused around my business.
0: Couple ideas then for you, because we're trying to figure out how to develop more of this past client sphere of influence. You said you'd love to get it up to 80, 90% of your business and yet also do more volume along the way. Have you considered or do you bring out these people to say one-on-one lunches during the week all the time. Uh, pick one new past client, invite them. Okay, so you are yeah. taking advantage of that. How about small parties, either in your home or another venue, where instead of hundreds of people, you just have maybe ten past clients that get together with you uh, at some kind of more intimate event.
1: Yeah, that's much more my that's much more my style, and we do. Like for example, I think every single weekend in December, my wife and I are, are doing dinner. On a Friday or a Saturday or both with past clients. Yeah, we're very big into that because you know part of the fact that we have a relationship with these people is the fact that they know me, my wife, they know my son. Like it's a, it's very personal, and so I love that. My wife loves that. We can connect very well on that. In fact, my wife has taken to delivering pies on Pie Week as well, um, which is saying something for her because if if I'm an introvert, she's a, a complete hermit. So. <laughs> she's, she's established <laughs> relationships with them too. So,
0: any other plans uh, for 2018 for what you would do to to generate more repeating referrals from your past clients of sphere of
1: influence? I'm going to do more in the way of um, handwritten cards, um, more consistent, and um, I'm going to try to do more of the one-on-one things. The difficulty is that you know, there's only so much availability in people's schedules to do that stuff too. So, um, but you know, there's that and, and we're probably going to try and introduce some sort of a, not necessarily a newsletter, but some other way of staying in touch with people. I'm I'm not sure yet if we're keeping the, the American lifestyle magazine, we've been doing it for the last three years or so. And I definitely don't have anything negative to say about it. I just don't know if it's, you know, if we're getting the $300 every, you know, two months worth out of it, we probably are, but, um. You know, I've got at least an extra ten grand uh, a year that I can put towards my clients because we're not spending it on Zillow. So,
0: Nate, just real quick thought there on the one one-on-ones, the say a lunch that you're going to invite someone to. Just keep in mind for everyone listening as well, it's not necessarily the lunch, right? So if you uh, call around to your friends to try to schedule lunch for next Friday at 11 o'clock, uh, maybe an early lunch, and you start calling, you're you're going to call 10 people before you find one that says yes. Well, the other nine are going to feel really good that you invited them.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really valid point. And I, I try to remember that. Um, I'm always so hung up on like, well, if, if Thursday doesn't work, how about we try this and then that? And then and then it's like you just have this big old <laughs> mess of people's schedules get all mixed up. And then I've double booked myself. and But all of that to say, you know, there's definitely something to do there.
0: When I talk to people, the advantage of doing the event, other than the event itself, which is usually a lot of fun in the connections, it's that they get a, have a reason for making multiple contacts to that person leading up to the event. So it's not just the one contact at the event, it's the four, five, or six invites that they put out and those connections that they're making with people, the post note that they send out to everybody to connect again. Now we're up to five, six, seven, possibly eight connections from one event.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, there's, there's and those are the types of things we do really want to do and the fact that we are much more narrowly focusing, because um, to be clear, what, what happened the beginning of the year and the reason why we did so many things is because I got overly excited that I had Rachel and thought that I could do a million different things because I had her and you know we just didn't do the, the right things well enough. Uh, it, to, to make them effective, we just did too many things, uh, too many disparate things that, that weren't as um, done with the same level of intent that they needed.
0: Let's switch gears. We've talked about your team and who's on the team. Just one quick question. People are always asking when they're putting together teams, how do, how do they, should they compensate buyer agents or team agents? You've done this a few times now. What kind of compensation program have you put together?
1: So, Mine is a little different Well, I guess I should say a lot different um, than I will say anybody else that I've talked to and I can't tell you the amount of people who have (laughs) tried to coach me on this and that's fine, they can keep coaching me, I just have a different idea about it. So if I bring it in, it's 50-50 and that part I feel great about. If I go and do an open house and we get a buyer from it and it goes to Denise, I'm cool, she's cool, it's 50-50. Um, if It doesn't matter what the source is, uh, if it's a paid source or it's uh, from prospecting, if I bring it in, it's 50-50. Now, if, uh, if they get a referral from that lead source, like let's just say, you know, again, I meet somebody in an open house and then Denise does such a stellar job with them and she's established a really good relationship and then they refer her. Um, obviously we would always prefer that they refer the team, but if they refer her, um, our agreement is that it's 50, 50 again, the second time around, just because that's kind of the, that's the fruit that, that the tree bore from it. And it would make sense that I still get paid on that. Now, after that, she's earned that client and, and this, this next referral that maybe comes from the, the person that just came to her as a referral, that's hers. And so anything that is generated by the agent, the only thing that I ask from them is that they contribute to the team, to the team coffers, the same amount that I do from every closing, which is 15%. So because at that point, the costs are essentially theirs. I mean, we run a very tight ship anyways. We don't have high overhead, so it's not like it's costing me a ton of money just to have them on board. So I want them to keep most of it because then it incentivizes them to produce. I want them to feel like they've got more control over their destiny. And I don't want them to be shopping from lead, from uh, team to team. There's a lot of different people that I talk to, particularly in our market where they go from team to team to team. And they're looking for leads and they're looking for, you know, who's got the best this or best that. And it's like, I want loyalty and I want people to feel like they're part of a, a family. I want people to feel like they're a part of a, um, call it more like a group. Like I feel like we practice in some way the way like a a doctor's office would. Granted, it's my name, my last name anyways, on the team or the Brill team, but I want them to feel like they've got ownership of the business they bring in. Part of the reason why I left the team I started on is that I brought everything in and yet they got credit for it. They got paid on it and that started to just completely disenfranchise me and I don't want somebody to feel that way. I want them to feel like you know, I'm not taking a cut off of their business just to take it. I'm taking it because it's it's not really me taking it, it's the team taking it because we want to enhance our ability to take on other things and take care of our past clients and so on and so forth. So um, so that's the way I compensate them. So it's 50-50 if I bring it in. It's 85-15 if, if they bring it in. Um, and then they get credit for it. They can put their name on it. They can claim it on Zillow or whatever. It's that's the way I want it to be. Cause I just want people to feel like they're again, they're part of something that they feel ownership of.
0: Well, they are you profitable?
1: Yeah. That's the one thing I can say. Um, first of all, yeah, this year sucked, uh, compared to last year by any other measure, it did not suck. Um, you know, it's still taking home a couple hundred grand and, anybody in any other job, certainly me in my past life, I could never have dreamed of making the kind of money that I make now. Um, And on top of that, we, we only pay cash for things. I've mentioned multiple times that I'm a a big Dave Ramsey follower. I've built my entire team, my entire business purely based off of cash. I have not borrowed a single penny for a single thing ever uh, in my business. So, Last year in 2016, um, we did the whole team. Hang on, let me pull this up. We did just about 500 or so in gross commissions for the whole team. That's not what I took home, but um, but after splits, it was about 360 to, uh, uh, to the to the actual team model. What actually goes into my account? Not that again doesn't mean that's what I take home, but. Um, We we run off 15% of that. So we're running somewhere between 80 and 85% profit margin. Um, And I do that because I have a very strong restriction on what my expenses can be because I refuse to let myself borrow money or go too far in that I have to resort to debt in order to keep paying overhead. Um, I try to not sign on to subscription things that have a, a... uh, contract because I don't like having to pay something over and over and over and know that I can't get out of it unless I run that clock out. Um, so if I'm going to do that, it's usually one or two things at a time. Like, you know, when you sign on with Zillow, you're stuck with Zillow for six or 12 months, whatever it is. Um, but everything else is, is a, an expense that I can cut or increase as needed. Other than I've got, you know, I've got a salary for, um, We've got a salary for Rachel, and then we've got other expenses that, that ebb and flow. But our transaction manager, we pay on a, um, a 1099, so they they basically get paid as they um, on the transactions they do, and um, it's not necessarily tied to just us. They have other agents that they're able to help as well. So that works really well for us because we're able to kind of allow that to uh, grow and contract as needed. Um, They're available to us for all of our transactions. They do our transactions exactly the way we want them done. Um, But at the same time, if business is slow, I'm not having to pay a salary on it. Um, All of our marketing expenses, again, other than things like Zillow, um, historically anyways, are are things that can ebb and flow as we need them to. So... We we keep it very profitable. I mean, this year, even though we we made a lot less money, it was still about sixty five percent profit margin, which is still, to my mind, extremely good. Um, I've got lots of friends that do a lot more business than I do, and I've always been open with numbers, and fortunately, they're open with me too, so I get a lot more insight into it. But there's a lot of people who do twice to three times the amount of business that I do and they're, come, they're bringing home nowhere near two to three times as much take home with a lot more stress and a lot more riding on it every single month. For me, you know, we take take a good amount home that we're able to to feel good about that doesn't stress us out every month because we don't have this gigantic pile of money we have to pay every month to keep the lights on. So anyway, yeah, somewhere between 65 and 80% you know, 85% when things are running really lean um, is about where we stay.
0: Well, Nate, what drives you?
1: That, you know, I, it's funny. I've now been listening to you for four years and I've listened to, I don't even know how many interviews, however many interviews you've done, I've listened to because I've listened to everything that is available. And I've listened to that question and the next question coming up and I've wondered how I would answer that. The The only way I can think to answer the question of what drives me is that that part in me that was yearning for more when I worked for the previous company, I had a steady paycheck. I had a job where I got to work from home three weeks out of the month. I got to travel on the company's dime. I got to work with people I loved. There was so little stress. I mean, I can't imagine a job with less stress. And yet still, there was this part of me that was unfulfilled and ultimately caused me to leave. Whatever that is that's in me, that need to do something that that pushes me, pushes my capabilities, pushes um, my own psychological boundaries, puts me into a position that 2017 did. Because if I was playing it safe, 2017 um, probably wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have gotten the perspective that I got. Um I think what drives me is being able to, to be the best me that I can. I've heard a lot of people answer this question, and there's nothing wrong with this. I'm very competitive myself, but being number one is less important to me than being the number one me that there is in that I'm doing the absolute best that I know I'm capable of, and I know that, again, if I'm being honest with myself, I am not. Certainly 2017 was not the best me that there was. I don't fault myself for it. I don't, I'm not continuing to beat myself up over it, but I know that I was capable of more, but I still at the same time know I needed to go through it. I like knowing that I can push myself to my own boundaries. I know that I can, uh, that I can do things that I know that other people might scoff at, other people might think are crazy, other people might think is uh, the wrong way to do it, whatever, but it's, it's me, it's my business. It's my team, I can run my team the way I wanna do it, and just that in and of itself, the ownership of that, and the rewards that I reap from it or not, is mine. That drives me. Um, I love numbers. I love tracking everything because it tells a story. And that drives me because I'm able to see what's working. I'm able to see what's not working. I'm able to look back at it and go, okay, well, what did we learn? Um, there's just there's so many, different, so many different pieces to it. But I think that the simplest answer is what drives me is being the best me that I can possibly be in every possible way. I mean that.
0: Well, they, why have you been so successful? Why did you have such a fast start?
1: So this is the question that I have mulled over more than any other, more than the one we just answered there. Um, I heard people answer it very succinctly with a single word with a couple words. Um, and some people that don't know, and it's not that I don't know. I definitely know what the traits are that I have that have contributed to it. But the thing that I, I feel is missing from, a, and this is not to say anything negative about the other ways that other people have responded to it, just for me personally and what I have figured out is it's it's sort of um, it's sort of like we in Western civilization and our diets. We try to figure out what other healthy people are doing and do that one thing. We try to figure out what other civilizations have the healthiest diets and we'll do that one thing. We'll we'll cut out fat, we'll cut out carbs, whatever, but we we like focus on this one thing. And it's never that one thing, ever. It's the synthesis of all of the things. It's the synthesis of being driven. It's the synthesis of um, tracking my numbers and knowing what I'm doing. It's... it's, um, being willing to put in the effort and the work that other people aren't willing to do. It's the fact that I do care. It's the fact that, I, um, that I'm that i working really, really hard with my clients and teaching them and making them feel like they're a part of this transaction and not just along for the ride. Like, There's so many different pieces to it that get people... I think people focus on one thing or the other and they're missing the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that it's not one thing. It's all of these things. It's the fact that I have a supportive spouse. It's the fact that I have an amazing team and that I've built a, a network of people around me who support me and care about me and love me. And, and that includes my clients. And I was able to, to catapult from 27 to 73 because I worked my ass off and I followed up with people, and people don't like to follow up. I don't like to follow up, but I do it. So I've pushed myself. I've pushed myself to do things I didn't want to do. I hate calling expireds and cancels, but I've done it, and it's been successful. I hate doing lots of different things that I do, but I do it. And so those are all the different things that make me successful, and then I look at 2017, and you know, I don't personally define it as a success from a business standpoint, but I do think it was something that was important to go through. And so I think that in and of itself is a success. And I think just the, the sheer ability to look at it and take ownership and and be able to look at it for what it is and get the perspective out of it, that is part of what contributes to the success. So I definitely don't have a single answer. I don't have a single one thing that I can point to. I can just say that it's all of it and it works in concert with itself. And I just... I think that there's a lot in this business that can get people bogged down and how difficult it can be, how difficult it can be just to get into the office and sit in front of your computer and decide I'm gonna do something even though I don't know what the hell to do. Pushing through that is part of what, that, that's what makes the, the, the winners from the quote losers. And I, I just think that people need to not overcomplicate it. They need to just sit down, do the work, and know that everything that they're doing in one way, shape, or form, as long as they do it consistently consistently, and care about what they're doing and who they're doing it for, they will be successful. And some will be quicker than others, and some will be much slower than others, um, and everybody's going to define their own success in their own way. And to me, success isn't just measured in transactions or sales volume. It's measured in you know, what I sought out to achieve and what I have to show for it at the end of it.
0: Well, Nate, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first?
1: This is going to sound like the most sycophantic comment I can possibly make to you, Mike, because I'm on your podcast. But the reason why this interview means so much to me is because I've been listening to your interviews from well before I ever even got licensed. I got my first class signed up. On December 4th of 2013 and I started listening to podcasts that week I was on the road and yours was I think the second one that I found and I listened to every single podcast that you had and have continued since and I have taken so much wisdom from if you were to count that up I don't even know how many transactions how many years were the business how many market cycles and different types of approaches. There's so much to learn from listening to other people's experiences. My wife is an avid reader and I don't, I mean, I, I take in books uh, by the boatload through audible, but I don't sit down and read a book. I wish I had the time or the inclination to do so, but there's so much information out there in so many different platforms. And the one to me that certainly has been the the most well served for this business in getting going, was listening to interviews uh, on your podcast. There are other podcasts with amazing uh, hosts and amazing um, guests, and you can pick up information from the different people that are that are on there in a way that you'll never ever get. That you can you could take every. Uh, top agent in your entire market out for lunch and you'll never get the amount of information that you'll get from listening to hour and two hour long interviews like what else do you have going on when you're driving in the car when you're out for a walk in the morning or whatever it is so if there was any piece of advice that I'd give somebody it would be listen to more of these interviews listen to more people who have been through it again part of the reason why I have spent so much of my time on this interview talking about 2017 is because I think people need to hear it People really need to hear it, that it's not all roses and it's not all easy and you're up and then you're down and then I know I'll get back up, but people need to hear that and they need that in order to keep themselves motivated and to make themselves feel like they're not subhuman while these other people who are doing exceptionally well are superhuman because none of us are. We're all doing our own thing and certain things are working for some of us and certain things aren't. And so start there. And then find what works for you. Like I said over and over, there are certain things that do not work for me. If you consider it cold business, it doesn't work for me. If it's warm and it's relational and it's, you know, there's a lot of connectivity there, that's my type of business. And if I can find a way, if I can find a way to do a cold lead source in a warm way, I'll do that. But I know based off of listening to all these different people and what's worked for them, I know what stuff is going to work for me and what stuff isn't. And I've, I feel like I've been able to circumvent probably decades off of my, my business just in terms of my education in the business by listening to other people talk about it. I know what it's like to work in a recession market in 2008 through 2012 when it was so heavily REO and the worst hit market in the country or one of them, but I've never worked that business. I just know it through osmosis, through, through listening to other people and multiple different perspectives on the same market from different people. And some people did extremely well and some people didn't. Some people worked assets. Other people worked normal, straightforward business. And it's like you can, you can pick up tidbits. You can pick up huge things. I mean, I've got things that are, that are pillars of my business that I learned from interviews on your show. And I just, I just can't say enough about it. And that's no, in no way to, to blow smoke or, you know, ingratiate myself to you. It's just because it's the truth.
0: Nate, I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm so happy and excited that we've helped you a little bit along on your journey. You did all the heavy lifting. <laughs> I'm glad we were able to go with you along this journey. Uh, it's very uh, satisfying to me to, to hear you say that. Well, Nate, we're going to start wrapping up this interview. I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners?
1: Yeah, uh, and it's probably going to sound redundant to everything else I just said, but this is hard stuff we're doing, and the business can pay well, and yet the average real estate agent makes less than a full-time McDonald's employee. Like, It's pretty sad when you look at the numbers. It's equal opportunity but it's uh, it's not equal um, in terms of what everybody makes. And I think it is the picture-perfect ideal of capitalism. And there are people who do extremely well, and there are people who don't, and it's all the same amount of opportunity, and you make of it what you're going to make of it. And um, I hope that by listening to, to my really good success of 2015 and 2016 and my less than stellar success of 2017 goes to show you that uh, that it certainly is not something that you can just rely on. You don't just get up and going and then suddenly you're successful. I mean, success is long earned. So I hope that that's what people get from it. And the last thing I'll say, and maybe this is just, uh, a, it'll be a small tangent and I'll try and keep it as concise as I can, but try and not care so damn much about the money. Like, I talk to agents, I've been on panels where they'll ask about commission and will you ever reduce your commission or will you ever negotiate and people will say yeah I start at 6 and go up from there or yeah I start at 7 and go down from there but like Caribbean is so damn money hungry there's so much of it in this business so much of it in this business I in 2015 so that I could build up my my database and my closings under my belt to to have closings my education I did what I don't think is necessarily the right or wrong thing to do, but I reduced my commission on every closing. And I still walked away with over 300 grand. And, and people whine, and people say that they're, you know, they're, they're selling themselves short. Well, see, to me, I grew up with a mother who was a social worker. And still to this day, she works off of a sliding scale. And some people she charges more to because they have more to pay. And it doesn't mean that she's worth more or less to either client, but some clients she charges less to because they don't have as much to give. And there are times where I'm running into situations where I have a client who needs my help and cannot pay me what I'm worth. I don't turn them away. I take them on because I care about them. And some people I make more off of and some people I make less off of. And at the end of the day, if, if that's how you're tallying it up, then, then I promise I won't see eye to eye with anybody on that. But... If you really care about the people, separate yourself from the money. Get paid what you're worth for sure. And I'm not saying that if you charge 6%, which I do, you know, I I feel like I'm worth it, and I also feel like I'm worth it when I do it for 4% because I have somebody who needs my help. So, again, kind of a tangent there, but it's such a – it's something that rubs me so the wrong way when I hear big agents talk about it like they will never, ever give, ever. And I just think it's selfish, and I think that there's enough room – here enough margin to do good for people when they need it.
0: Well Nate, you are passionate about real estate and helping people you meet. You had a quick start in real estate working inside a big successful team. You used those lessons to expand rapidly when you went solo. You mastered open houses and practiced consistent lead generation. You tracked your numbers and have excellent data to make informed decisions. Although you stumbled and your production fell in half you recovered, analyzed why, and have a game plan for next year. I see a bright future and bigger success ahead. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 84 homes last year worth $32 million in her fourth year. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate brand who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.